Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to share a few things about this podcast. This is an independent one-woman production, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to keep us going and growing. There are a few simple things that you can do to help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever apps you use to listen to your shows on. You can recommend the show in true crime discussion and fan groups. You can join our discussion group on Facebook. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to do a little bit more to help out, you can go over to Patreon and search for California Dreaming, or the link is in the show notes, and check out the exclusive bonus episodes that you can access starting at $1 a month. And if a subscription isn't your thing, but you would still like to help, you can make a donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I want to thank you for your patience and waiting for me to get this episode out. My daughter visited me for a week last week, so I kind of put things on hold for a bit, which is part of the reason why I released two episodes a couple weeks ago. And one last thing before we get started, I need to provide you with this warning. These episodes may contain graphic details, including gun violence, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and strong language, and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Sources for this story include the book All She Slash He Wanted by Aphrodite Jones, as well as some online articles and court documents, all of which will be listed in the show notes. All right, let's get started with this week's episode. Oh, and one other thing. Please listen past the end of this episode for a promo brought to you by the Invasion of the Remake podcast. It isn't true crime, but it might be something some of you may be interested in subscribing to. So give it a listen after the show. If you have not listened to the first two parts of this series, you may want to pause this episode here and go back and listen to episodes 226 and 227 first, and then come back so you'll be caught up. Last time we left off with Brandon Tina having revealed to the young girl that he had been seeing for a couple of years, Heather Kafal, that he was transgender. Heather had a complete meltdown and even called the police, but things had calmed down and the police ended up leaving without incident. But later that evening, Brandon made an apparent attempt at suicide by ingesting a bottle of antibiotics and was rushed to the hospital. We will pick up the story from there. One week after Brandon's attempted overdose on the 29th of January, and this is 1992 now, Sarah and Heather brought him to the Lancaster County Crisis Center Today, it's called the Mental Health Crisis Center of Lancaster County, and it is located in the city of Lincoln. They had called in advance and said that they were bringing in their 19-year-old friend who attempted to take his own life a week earlier and was continuing to make threats to do additional acts of self-harm, potentially. But when they picked Brandon up to take him, 
they told him where they were going, but they didn't tell him the truth as to why they were going. The ruse was that they were going there to visit Heather's mom, who had been getting outpatient treatment at the crisis center, but was being admitted for inpatient services. Once they were inside, Heather spoke to Brandon privately to tell him that she didn't care about who he was or what anyone has to say about him, that she loved him, but she also wanted to see him get help because she could see how depressed Brandon had become. Brandon tried to explain that the only reason that he was feeling so down and depressed was because of all the pain that he was causing her. He apologized, he expressed his deep remorse, and said that it was never his intention to ever do anything to hurt her, that he loved her, and he was willing to take whatever necessary steps needed to be taken to be with her once again. Heather had been feeling really mixed up about herself. She was deeply confused, and she had spent the last week contemplating her own sexuality. Here's Brandon. She was crazy in love with him, but because his gender assigned at birth was female, she wanted to know what that meant for her. She began questioning whether or not she was gay. It wasn't anything she ever wondered about previously. And while Brandon continued to ask for her to be with him again, she couldn't help thinking about what that would mean for their future. What would happen to them? What would other people think? What would this mean for her in terms of what her sexual identity or orientation would be? And what did it mean for Brandon? All of it was still very new and very raw. And Heather cried as she embraced Brandon. She wanted to kiss him, but he pulled back and he hesitated, not really wanting to go where Heather wasn't sure that she wanted to be. But Heather continued to cry as they talked. They tried sorting out their feelings while Brandon tried to cope with the guilt of hurting Heather so much. She told Brandon that she thinks about him constantly, day and night. She said that she lies awake in bed all night long, unable to sleep, unable to eat. She told Brandon that her world had been crumbling down ever since he was no longer with her, and that she so badly wanted everything to go back to the way it once was when they first fell in love. But her family and friends kept trying to get it through her head that things were never going to be the same between her and Brandon. Brandon did not want to be checked into this mental health crisis center. But if it meant that things between Heather and himself would get better or this would help things to improve, then he was willing to give it a go. Because Brandon had made a suicide attempt, he had to be put on watch. And they also contacted his mom, Joanne, to have her come in and speak with his social worker as well. She explained that Brandon had resisted going to any doctors for many years because he did not want anyone looking at him or giving him any type of physical examinations. And he certainly did not want to be 
put in any hospital gown. Joanne said that she was having a hard time making sense of whatever it was Brandon was going through, and making that even worse was the fact that Brandon had lied to her so much that she never felt like she was able to get to the heart of the matter. She just could not get the truth out of him. And in Brandon's efforts to deflect away from everything, he would try to turn everything into some sort of crazy prank or a joke. Joanne also expressed to the social worker how stunned she was to find out that Brandon was interested in having intimate relationships with females. Joanne also managed to make everything going on with Brandon all about herself by telling the social worker that Brandon resented her because he lacked a strong father figure in his life and that he blamed her for causing him all this pain and that the only reasons Brandon was doing what he was doing, meaning the reasons why he was identifying as male, is because she had hurt him so bad. So she essentially sees herself as the victim in this whole thing. When Brandon's sister Tammy and their mom Joanne got to the treatment center to see him, he was really upset because he just didn't think that this treatment was what he needed. He didn't think that he needed any kind of mental health help, and he certainly didn't feel like he needed to be admitted to this inpatient facility. The mental health professional who began seeing Brandon, Dr. Claus Hartman, believed him to need some very intensive treatment across time over the long term because he believed Brandon to be a pathological liar with an identity crisis. Brandon had told a social worker that when he first spoke to them, he was involved in a romantic relationship with his girlfriend, Heather, and that he began telling the girls that he was meeting that his name was Billy Brinson, and he stated that he wanted to be a man. Brandon also admitted that he had gotten in trouble for writing bad checks, but he, for some reason, inflated just how much trouble he was actually in by telling the therapist that he had at least a dozen charges that were still pending in court and that he was looking at maybe being charged with crimes related to being sexually involved with a minor. In addition to that, Brandon stated emphatically that he was not suicidal. And he also said that when it came to his education, he was close to finishing up his GED requirements and that he was going to move to Denver, Colorado, where he planned on attending a fine arts college. Brandon also opened up to his therapist about having been sexually assaulted back in October of 1990, but he did not get into too many specifics about what happened or who did it, but he said that he never sought any kind of treatment or help following the assault. He insisted that he did not need any sort of mental health treatment. He was adamant that his family was not problematic or dysfunctional and that he grew up without his father who was killed in a car accident eight months before he was born, that his dad had rolled his convertible and went over the side of a bridge after a long day of fishing and drinking. Dr. Hartman found Brandon to be a very nice young person who was amicable and cooperative when they spoke. Keep in mind that this psychiatrist is speaking to Brandon and dealing with him as being a young woman, not as a young man that he's trying to identify himself as. The doctor thought Brandon was quite small in stature, 
um, observed him to be very thin, but otherwise had nothing unusual about him or the way that he conducted himself that stood out. Brandon was polite, he was easy to talk to, and the psychiatrist did not feel that Brandon was suffering from depression, nor did he seem to be in a state of psychosis. It was the doctor's determination that Brandon was having a minor identity disorder. He wouldn't have even classified it as a crisis. He did find that Brandon had difficulty making appropriate choices and judgments when it came to the individuals that he became intimately involved with, but he does have a certain level of understanding and self-awareness that when it comes to sex and his sexual desires, that he is different from his peers or other people his age. After several days of treatment and talking to Dr. Hartman, Brandon decided to finally have a heart-to-heart with his mom. When they talked, Brandon framed what he was about to tell Joanne as being information or recommendations that had come from his therapist. And one of the things that the therapist had suggested that might be an option for him was gender reassignment surgery. I guess this is where being known as a jokester kind of caught up with Brandon because, you know, there are times when you need to get serious and people aren't really taking you seriously because you never are serious. Joanne thought Brandon was pulling her leg or winding her up, as they say in Great Britain. Not only did Joanne think Brandon was joking, she thought the whole idea of a quote-unquote sex change was a big joke, too. She just didn't think it was possible for Brandon to have gotten to that mental health care facility just a few days earlier, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Brandon thinks he wants to have this major surgery. She brushed it off as another one of Brandon's outlandish stories that he's just talking out of his ass. But Brandon characterized the procedure as real simple, in and out, no big deal, problem solved, but... Joanne remained dubious. The following is a direct quote from Joanne from Aphrodite Jones's book. Of Brandon, Joanne stated, She said she felt more like a man inside than a woman, and I didn't know what to say. You have to realize how devastated I was. I raised this child for 18 years and never had a clue that there was anything different going on in her life. Which... Dreamers doesn't surprise me one bit considering how wrapped up in her own life Joanne had been, how truly out of touch that she had been. And I mean, how could she not notice when she's raising two children side by side, both girls? And I don't want to get all stereotypey about this sort of stuff, but it is what it is. One child for her entire life grew up embracing all things stereotypically girly, and the other one was a complete polar opposite. Just because Brandon dressed like a boy, engaged in imaginary play by placing himself in traditionally male roles, and generally spent his entire life growing up embracing all things that were stereotypically tomboyish, Does that necessarily mean a female child who is a tomboy is going to end up gay or transgender? No. But if Brandon just so happens to decide that he wants to live his life as a transgender male, then 
all of the clues growing up might not be all that shocking, perhaps. Joanne, it seemed like she just needed some time to let it all sink in, to think about it for a while, to reflect back on everything that had happened in those 18 years, up to and including her even questioning Brandon's sexuality, at one point demanding to know the truth as to whether or not he was a lesbian even. I don't think it should have been that outlandish, considering Joanne thought or suspected for a time that he might be gay. I don't think it should have been that far-fetched that he were to suddenly believe and tell her and share with her and open up about the fact that he is a or was a transgender man. We can only speculate as to why she had such a hard time with it. Could be denial or fear. But we do know Joanne would continue to reject Brandon's male identity for the remainder of his life. I have no doubt that she loved Brandon deeply, but it doesn't sound like she was really able to accept it. At the very least, she never really had enough of an opportunity to accept it. And that's because we know how Brandon's story ends. And perhaps Joanne decided that she never would because of the reasons why his story ended. We also need to consider and remember the time period that they were at and how misunderstood the idea of being transgender was and the concept of gender-affirming surgery was something new to a lot of people. Joanne admitted that she didn't know much more about the subject beyond what she would see on daytime television talk shows. And I really didn't watch very many daytime talk shows back then, nor have I ever really been a huge fan. I was always busy at those times of day, you know, but if daytime talk shows are where Joanne was getting her information from, then it's probably no wonder that she thinks all of this is ridiculous because those talk shows can be exploitative. Joanne was under the impression that before Brandon could even consider gender-affirming surgery, that he needed to go through very intensive psychoanalysis over a long period of time, and that Brandon was most likely going through an identity crisis, which can happen during puberty, and that Brandon was just confused, and that they could all just basically ride this out until it passed. She thought Brandon was oversimplifying a very complicated situation. And there's no doubt that Brandon and Joanne were both confused. And perhaps everything that's happening or going on in the life of a transgender person is difficult and complicated. But I think the feeling that Brandon expressed to his mom when he said that he feels more like a man inside than a woman that it was that simple for Brandon because that's exactly what that was and it's all that it was the complicated stuff is the hard stuff telling family sorting through the early confusion during adolescence dealing with bullies and bigots and then the contemplation of surgery but overall I think Brandon was pretty forthcoming and honest when he said, I feel like more of a man 
than a woman. Plain and simple. And then after talking to Brandon for a little while, his mom finally reached the conclusion that Brandon was serious about everything that he was telling her. He was adamant about wanting the surgery. There were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He wanted it. Joanne expressed her concerns over the cost, which obviously Brandon is already well aware of. It's out of reach. At least it was at the time. But that was a bridge that he was going to cross when he got to it. But we do know that Brandon's opportunity to get there was stolen from him. Interestingly enough, Brandon did not reveal to his therapist that he had this specific discussion with his mom. When he was asked if he talked to her about gender-affirming surgery, he said that they never discussed it. And I don't know why he denied that. Maybe Brandon didn't like his mom's reaction and didn't want to talk about it. That's just a guess, but you all can reach your own conclusions. I don't know why, of all the people, that Brandon could have been honest and open and forthcoming with was his therapist, and he continued to hide things and lie about certain things. In all, Brandon was at the crisis center for one week, but it doesn't really sound like it helped all that much. He had hesitated engaging in the group activities. He didn't seem to be all that receptive to the counseling. Brandon mostly spent his days worrying about whether or not he would have permission to call Heather, which he was constantly trying to do, but he needed permission to use the phone, and he got in trouble several times for misusing the phone privileges at the facility. In addition to that, Brandon was no longer allowed to call Sarah's home, his best friend, and that wasn't the doing of the crisis center. That was on Sarah's mom. She did not want Brandon calling and even went so far as to contact the crisis center, and she put them on notice. If she received another phone call from Brandon originating from their facility, she would be calling the police and filing a harassment report against him. And if you recall, remember Sarah's mom? I can't remember if I stated her name or not, but remember she was the Catholic fanatic with the living room altar where she made her kids bow down and kiss the floor every time they pass by it. So yeah, she's probably not too keen on Brandon being transgender. After being in the treatment center for a week, Brandon seemed to be doing well with the therapy, and it appeared to be helpful for him. He started keeping a daily journal, and he was beginning to understand what some of his issues may be related to. Brandon also began interacting a little bit better in the group setting. He was a little bit more social and less standoffish. He was willing to sit down and play board games and watch TV and participate in some outdoor recreational activities. But the one thing that Brandon continued to struggle with was his becoming more aware of what was going on with him on the inside. When he worked on quote-unquote getting in touch with his inner feelings, he had a hard time with that. And whenever he was told anything encouraging or positive, it was almost as if he was not capable of accepting those sentiments. In fact, it was as if he felt like he was being lied to 
when people would tell him that he was worthy and his life was important. Brandon had been able to open up to one of the mental health counselors during some one-on-one time about some of his more troubling issues. He said that he didn't feel as though his mother loved him. He talked about all of the dysfunction in his family, the sexual abuse that he endured by a male family member, and how that had gone on for many years, starting when he was very young and continuing on into his adolescence. Brandon described often feeling afraid or fearful of certain men and had, for quite some time, been mainly sexually attracted to women. Brandon also said that it was his desire to identify as male as opposed to being a lesbian because he felt less concerned or fearful of men as a man himself. Brandon also told the clinician that he did ingest a bottle of prescription antibiotics in order to make a point. His clinician also felt like Brandon behaved somewhat immature at times and almost always appeared to be happy. In fact, the clinician noted that happiness was just about the only emotion that Brandon ever expressed. And while the prospect of one day being able to have gender reassignment surgery felt very encouraging for Brandon, he was still hesitant to accept or take responsibility for some of the other problems that he had going on in other areas of his life, like his legal problems and dealing with the trauma of the sexual abuse that he had endured. And speaking of Brandon's legal problems, he did manage to get one of his court dates for the forgery case postponed while he was in the treatment center, but he promised to turn himself in to the county jail as soon as he was discharged from the facility. So when Brandon checked out of the treatment center, it was determined that they would continue outpatient treatment with him. Brandon was diagnosed with transsexualism as well as a personality disorder. One of the things that was noted in his discharge papers was that he had stated that he was born a hermaphrodite and that when he was born, his mom chose to raise him as a female. Joanne denied this was the case, but anyway, Brandon would be visited by his clinician at home, but first he needed to go to jail. He stayed there for a few days until his paternal grandmother, Doris, was able to get him out on bail. When Brandon was finally let out on bail, one of the first things that he wanted to do was try to win Heather back. He sent her love letters and greeting cards, but Heather cannot be swayed. She had already decided that they just weren't meant to be. She felt like Brandon had lied to her about everything including one day raising a family together. And he tried to tell her that he meant everything that he said, that he did want to raise a family with her, that they could have kids through adoption. There are plenty of children who need a loving home. He profusely apologized for everything that he had done and how badly he had messed things up between them. The promise ring that he gave her was given back to him. But before Brandon walked away for good, he wanted to know if she could just please be a part of his life. Please let him spend some time with her. Brandon just really needed to know that she was there with him, even if she couldn't be with him with him. 
She said that she would be around. He promised that he would not be much of a burden, and she thought that there was a chance that they could be friends. Brandon, being Brandon, actually didn't wait very long to move on to a new love interest. Her name was Rihanna Allen. After all of his attempts to get back with Heather had failed, Brandon went ahead and moved in in short order with Rihanna. But when Heather found out about it, she got pretty upset and jealous, even though he tried and tried and tried to get back together with her first. After a while, after it all sunk in, Heather was able to accept that Brandon had moved on and she figured she could do the same. While all of that was going on, Brandon's mom and sister had somewhat of a hard time getting used to Brandon's diagnosis, including the process of beginning to accept his male identity. Joanne felt as though Brandon's issues were something that he was going to have a really hard time dealing with both on an emotional but also a financial level. Tammy struggled with getting used to calling him Brandon, and it was hard to not accidentally call him Tina, and this would lead to some awkward situations for them if they were in public. When it came to the rest of the family, with Tammy and Joanne trying to deal with whether or not they would accept Brandon's male identity, it was hard because they weren't sure how all the rest of the family was going to react. Everyone seemed too busy or didn't really care to know and understand why Brandon was the way that he was. Why was he dressing like a guy? Why is he cutting his hair like a guy? So they just came to their own conclusions without really acknowledging his being transgender. So the family just as soon avoided the whole thing because it had just become more complicated than any of them were really wanting to deal with. It kind of felt like their lives had turned into their own living real-time daytime talk show. Like this is something crazy that should only be happening to other people, but it's actually happening to them. Brandon continued to participate in the regular outpatient therapy session, and one of his therapists named Debbie Bodke felt as though Brandon was responding well and making progress when it came to understanding himself by taking a look at what he had been through thus far in his life, being okay and at peace with who he was, as well as accepting and being comfortable with being validated and reinforced in a positive manner. After two weeks or so into the outpatient therapy, Joanne went to one of Brandon's sessions with him. She assumed that she was going to get the rundown on Brandon's diagnoses, the transsexualism and the personality disorder, but that isn't exactly what happened. It would be during this therapy session that included Joanne where she first learned of Brandon having been sexually abused by a male family member. Joanne was stunned. She was totally taken by surprise when she heard this. Brandon never divulged anything of the sort was going on. Joanne described that feeling in the moment that she found out as being horrified. And she just about got down on her knees and begged and pleaded for forgiveness from Brandon because she felt so responsible. Responsible 
in the fact that she failed to protect him. And then Joanne's next reaction was to immediately go to this person who had abused Brandon and confront them about what he had told her. But Brandon did not want this. He did not want his mom to say or do anything, preferring to just let it be. He told his mom, now you know, just let's move on. But Joanne was not willing to let the matter rest. Making things even worse, Joanne learned from Brandon during that therapy session that not only had this relative abused Brandon, but this same relative had done the same thing to his sister Tammy. Joanne wanted to go to the police. She wanted to file a report and she wanted this man behind bars. And in addition to that, learning of this abuse, Joanne now had something to hang on as being the reasons why Brandon doesn't like men and was convinced that it was his relative's fault that Brandon's life was destroyed. So she kind of felt the blame shifting off of her and onto this relative. And she also wanted to destroy his life, just like he had done to Brandon. With a diagnosis of what was officially going on with Brandon, right there down on paper in black and white, it was issued by a psychiatrist. Brandon thought perhaps that if he could show Heather that there is a name for what he has. It's real and it's a thing, it's diagnosable, and it's not that he's gay. That was Heather's biggest issue. She wasn't a lesbian, but being with Brandon, with his gender at birth being female, in her mind, made her a lesbian. He wanted Heather to understand that he's really just a guy and he just so happened to be stuck in the wrong body so even though Brandon had seemingly moved on with his new girlfriend Rihanna he still very much was carrying a torch for Heather but when he took a step back and assessed his relationship with Heather versus his relationship with Rihanna things were just a lot more simple when it came to Rihanna she had been having a crush on Brandon for quite some time, back even when he was in the beginning stages of his relationship with Heather. In fact, it was more than just a crush, as she would describe it as having fallen in love with him very quickly. She was 15 years old at the time that they got together in 1992. Brandon had just turned 19 that past December. And he started to feel like being with Heather was a task in constantly having to explain everything to her, constantly having to reassure her that she should feel confident in herself and the relationship, that he was a guy and she was a girl and they were in love. But Heather couldn't get past the idea that Brandon was, quote unquote, really a girl. She was a girl and that made them lesbians. Heather couldn't let it go. Rihanna, however, had already fallen for Brandon and there really wasn't anything that he needed to convince her of. It was easy being with Rihanna. And Brandon liked that. And for her, if there was such a thing as love at first sight, then that is definitely how she felt for Brandon. And she was unaware that he was transgender. Brandon had an easier time finding jobs 
than actually holding on to a job. And you know, when you get into a relationship with someone, having a job is important. Brandon tended to attract young girls, too young sometimes. So perhaps a guy with a job isn't much of a requirement for a girl in high school versus an adult woman. But it didn't seem to matter whether Brandon held down a steady job or not. He had this ability to get young girls believing that he had money at his disposal. All of Rihanna's friends just thought Brandon was so cute. All of them wanted to also be dating him, many of them. They found him to not only be really attractive, but he was a very sharp dresser. There are several pictures of Brandon online wearing some of those very dated trends of the early 90s, which I think is making a comeback as we speak. As for Rihanna, she was very beautiful, and as much as she adored Brandon, the feelings were mutual. He adored her too. Rihanna wanted very much to eventually have a sexual relationship with Brandon, but she stated that they never did. The timing was never really right. The furthest they ever did was kiss, and Rihanna described Brandon as always knowing exactly what to do and what to say, but also at the same time never putting any pressure on her to do anything at all. And Rihanna's mom, Brenda, took a liking to Brandon way easier than any other guy that her daughter have, had ever brought home to meet her before. On top of being a perfect gentleman, Brenda also loved that Brandon wasn't like this big, overgrown, muscular, hairy guy that was clearly too old to be dating her daughter, even though Brandon kind of technically was. She felt at ease with Brandon. She felt like he was no threat to her daughter and that if Rihanna was out with Brandon, that she had nothing to worry about. And Brandon was pretty good at charming people, and Rihanna's mom was no exception. He offered to help out around the house. He would bring flowers for both Rihanna and Brenda. He would show up with food. Rihanna knew that Brandon wanted to make a good impression on her mom, so yeah. He would be washing dishes, cleaning the house, Definitely ways to get to mom's heart. Like Brandon had done in the past with his previous girlfriends, Tracy and Heather, he very quickly moved in with Rihanna and her family. Like she had in the past, Joanne did what she could to get in between Brandon and Rihanna. Shortly after Brandon moved into Rihanna's home, Joanne managed to track him down and called over there to speak to Rihanna's mom. Joanne told her that she wanted to meet up in person so that they could talk about things, and Brenda agreed to go to Joanne's to speak to her because she kind of made it sound pretty urgent. And they didn't actually really live too far apart from one another, so Brenda, along with Rihanna, went over to Joanne's trailer. As soon as Brenda saw Joanne, she realized that they had actually grown up together and gone to school together and had been pretty good friends. In fact, when Joanne had Brandon, Brenda had actually visited and even helped to change his diaper. Eventually, they got to the reasons for the visit, and it had to do with Brandon. Joanne told Brenda that this was a stunt that Brandon liked to pull, and he did it constantly. He kept insisting that people call him Brandon in public, 
but Joanne herself flat out refused to do so. And Brenda, thinking back on the whole thing, acknowledged that she kind of wondered about Brandon to a point where she wanted to see his driver's license. But the two moms agreed that Brandon needed to go home to his own family. He needed to keep up with his therapy and he really needed to be closely supervised. Brenda agreed that would be for the best and at the same time, she was now having to try and console her broken-hearted daughter who sat there and just sobbed as the women discussed Brandon's supposed identity crisis. What really ended up getting to Rihanna in the end was when Joanne proved what she was saying was true, that Brandon's gender at birth was female, and she proved it by showing Rihanna that the word female was typed in on Brandon's birth certificate. Rihanna still had doubts about Joanne and what she was saying and the veracity of what she was being told. Brandon told Rihanna that his mom lied a lot, that she goes around and tells people stories that are totally fictional. And Brandon was trying to explain all of this stuff later that same day that Brenda and Rihanna had spoken to his mom. Brandon tried to deny everything that his mom was telling them. And Rihanna, for her part, she wanted to believe what Brandon was telling her was the actual truth. And she even took measures to convince herself that Brandon's mom was the one that was lying by excusing away this alleged proof that Joanne had that she was trying to say was evidence of the, the actual truth. And that actual truth was that Brandon was female. Well, Rihanna had more question than, questions than answers, and she wasn't going to get a straight story from Joanne, so she decided to try and talk to Brandon about the whole thing. Chances are, knowing what we know about Brandon, she wasn't going to get a straight story from him either. But he had this way about him that always worked like a charm when it came to settling things down with the young ladies that he got into relationships with. So then Rihanna went and talked to Heather. But Heather sided with Brandon, casting his mom as a habitual liar because she didn't want to have one boy and one girl. She always said that she wanted to have two girls. That's why she decided to raise Brandon as a girl. In response to all of this, Rihanna kind of sort of insinuated that, well, Heather should know what was going on with Brandon because she was the one that had a reputation for sleeping around with a whole bunch of different guys in town. Heather denied that she had ever had sex with Brandon, so she claimed that she had no idea. The girls, these two girlfriends of Brandon's, Heather and Rihanna, they got into throwing these verbal barbs at one another for about an hour, just going back and forth. Like, no, you're the whore. No, you're the whore. You slept with him. No, you slept with him. It didn't much matter what Heather was willing to admit to Rihanna or not. Brandon was going to continue to deny the things that his mom was saying was true and use one excuse after another to try to explain everything away. Brandon had gotten pretty good at hiding things over the years. For a while, Rihanna stuck it out with Brandon. They had grown very attached to one another, and if nothing else, she felt like she had a close friendship with him. They continued going out. They took up line dancing. They did these fun things at these country western bars. Rihanna always thought Brandon was so handsome and good looking, but she really liked him when they went out dancing and 
He would wear that sort of Western style clothing. She loved having him as her boyfriend and it made lots of her friends jealous, which she also really loved. They continued to discuss the future, including Brandon having divulged to Rihanna that he has a very wealthy grandmother, which was a lie, and the plan was to send him to a specialist in France who was going to perform the gender reassignment surgery, which is another lie. And he even told Rihanna that he wanted her to travel with him. While they managed to stay friends for a while, Brandon and Rihanna did fight a lot. A cousin of Rihanna's finally knocked some sense into her and said, if they're fighting this bad now, imagine what the future was going to be like. The relationship was all wrong and Brandon was all wrong. Being with him was too stressful. None of this was worth it. And Rihanna's cousin also felt like Brandon was too possessive of Rihanna and her time. And she didn't like that one bit. Rihanna did end things with Brandon. And while it was hard and she still loved him, she felt like there really was no future with him. Some time had passed and so did Brandon's 20th birthday on December 12th, 1992. And Brandon had found himself in a new relationship with another young woman named Gina. It had been a while since he had seen or talked to Rihanna. She had stopped taking his phone calls and did what she could to try and erase him from her life. Well, they randomly crossed paths at a local hangout. It tends to happen in these small town types of places. And Rihanna was there with her brother. Brandon invited them to come over to his place and hang out. And it was there that Rihanna met the new girlfriend, Gina. She tried to be cordial, but she gave off kind of a snobbish vibe. So she had little to say. And as they just sat there trying to converse, it was pretty awkward. So Rihanna decided to leave. And she figured that since Brandon had this new girlfriend that she wouldn't be hearing from him anymore. However, a few weeks after that little gathering, Brandon had managed to get Rihanna to talk to him again, and they started hanging out almost every day all over again. Rihanna was kind of afraid that she would fall for Brandon again, but she did her best to make sure that he couldn't tell how she felt. When Brandon moved out of Rihanna's house, he moved back in with his paternal grandmother, Doris. It, for him, was just easier that way. Doris wasn't always breathing down his neck like his mom had been. He spent most of his time with Sarah and Gina, and if he didn't feel like going home, he didn't have to, and his grandma didn't ask questions. Also living there were one of his cousins named Maury, so Doris had two grandchildren living with her, which... She didn't mind at all. Maury was openly gay, and sometimes Grandma Doris would joke about her F-word grandkids that were living with her. And it's not the four-letter F-word. It's the other one that's a derogatory term for gay people. In Aphrodite Jones's book, she chalked it up to the grandma just do joking around and that she didn't care either way about her grandchildren's sexual orientation or identity. But it was still kind of harsh to me. And we're talking 30 years ago. And for it to even be spelled out in the book, I thought was kind of a lot too. I don't know if 
they would exactly do the same thing today. Possibly. I don't know. This book is quite old and I'm not hugely keen on the way things are written and worded throughout a lot of it. But anyway, I'm not a book critic, so I'm not going to go there. Obviously, Aphrodite Jones is really famous and is a well-known and prolific author. And who am I to say, right? Okay. Not like I've ever published a book, nor will I ever. So anyway, Brandon liked Maury a lot and he really enjoyed hanging out with him. Maury introduced to Brandon some of his favorite local gay bars to hang out at. But more than that, Brandon really needed a friend like Maury. Those who knew Brandon, including Rihanna, have insisted that Brandon did not have any issues with his cousin being gay or with gay men in general, but claimed that Brandon had a huge problem with gay women. Rihanna is even quoted as saying Brandon hated lesbians, that there was a time when his sister Tammy got pregnant and ended up adopting the baby out to a lesbian couple in California, and he couldn't stand it. Now, Dreamers, one of the problems that I did have with this book that Jones wrote is that everyone who is quoted or referenced in the book, whether it was a member of the family or a friend or an ex-girlfriend, they all speak about Brandon's feelings as if they know what he was thinking and feeling to be fact. Like, they didn't say, well, it's possible Brandon felt this way or deep down he was thinking this. They stated it as if it were the truth. And I didn't really care for that because we can't really know for sure. These are all people's opinions. And I think that it would have been better to have differentiated between what people speculated and what people actually knew. But anyway, Brandon hating lesbians, that was an opinion that Gina also expressed about Brandon. And they were in a relationship and she knew him well, but she wasn't as young as the other girls that Brandon had been involved with because Gina was 19. But she could also be kind of naive, and she didn't know Brandon was transgender for most of their relationship. And Brandon wasn't always the most genuine person when it came to being honest with people about his feelings and the truth. So it's possible that Brandon may have had unflattering things to say about gay women, and maybe it was from a place of fear or confusion about his own sexuality. And it was sort of his way of perhaps validating his own identity, his way of disproving the rumors or thoughts that he was a lesbian by distancing himself and putting down the whole idea of gay women being together. But he was seemingly comfortable with gay men, but not gay women. I don't know. It sounds like some pretty complex feelings that perhaps make sense somewhere. And I'm just not really that qualified to expand on that. So anyway, Brandon was introduced to Gina. Her name was Gina Bartu by his cousin, Maury, and he very quickly fell for her. And don't worry, dreamers. I will sort through the girlfriends as we go along here. I'll give them, I'll remind you of their names and their numbers as we go. Gina, I believe is girlfriend number four, something along those lines. But anyway, 
Brandon and Gina met shortly after he had gotten out of the county jail. And while Brandon had fallen pretty hard for her, she was wanting to take things a little bit slow. She had only had one boyfriend prior to Brandon, so she didn't want to rush things. He told Gina that the reason that he was in jail was over his failure to pay some traffic fines, which wasn't true. Well, mostly not true. But Gina never really looked that deep into it anyway. Brandon had this really young, sweet, innocent, baby face looking thing going on for him that people tended to take what he said at face value and not question him. It made it easier for Brandon to hide the truth if he wanted to or felt like he needed to. He didn't want to tell Gina that he had been in jail for forging checks and stealing money from his ex-girlfriend's mother. And you know, because Gina was older, she wasn't exactly at a place in her life where she would want to consider a long-term relationship with a guy who had been as directionless as Brandon seemed to have been at this point in his life. He had been making some pretty poor judgment calls. He seemed to be acting out in a very impulsive manner with no consideration of the consequences. And he tended to frame everything that he did as some sort of joke or a means of making light of something. Like when he was going to go out on that double date with Sarah and Drew, and he told them that the only reason he was going to go out with that girl was to pull a joke on her or prank her to see if he could pass himself off as a guy. When the truth was, he wanted to date girls. He just couldn't bring himself to say it outright to his friends, at least not yet. So he turned it into a supposed prank. But anyway, Gina wanted to find a guy that had some stability. And she certainly wasn't interested in anyone who was getting in tons of trouble, spending a day or two or three in jail every other month or so. What Gina really didn't have the chance to come to understand about Brandon before she fell for him was how he was in this constant quest to run from who he was, the person that he didn't want to be. He kept changing his living situation. He'd be staying at his grandma's for a while, then he'd end up at his mom's. Then he would be living at whoever was the girlfriend of the month. So it was quite some time before Brandon even brought Gina around to meet his family. And when Brandon did talk about his family, he kind of seemed distanced and detached from them, as if they were a memory from long ago, a part of his past that he was constantly trying to get away from. Early on in his relationship with Gina, Brandon kind of had a problem with a stalker. And he had dated a girl named Danielle right before he met Gina. And she was just like crazy for Brandon. Like so many of these girls seem to be, right? But when he started seeing Gina and then things began to get serious, this girl Danielle started following them around, watching him all the time, showing up to the places that he was at. And eventually he had to tell Danielle that if she didn't stop, he was going to report her to the sheriff. Before long, like everybody else, Brandon ended up living with Gina. And they were sharing a place with Brandon's ex-girlfriend, of all people, Rihanna, and her brother, Alan. Which, to me, feels kind of awkward, but hey, different strokes for different folks, I suppose. But you know, these people have limited means. They gotta do what they gotta do to keep a roof over their heads. And I guess that means living with your exes if you have to. So the four of them shared a trailer. 
Brandon and Ellen found jobs selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And that was kind of a popular thing for a long time. Salespeople coming up to your door trying to sell Kirby vacuums. So, yeah, that's what they were doing. And you could probably imagine they weren't making all that much money. Gina didn't tell her parents that she had moved in with a boyfriend. So she kept the dorm that she lived in at college just in case her parents called looking for her. They would be able to leave a message on her answering machine. But there was just no way that they would be okay with her living with Brandon. In true to form, Brandon treated Gina like a queen. He complimented her all the time. He told her how good she looked and how he loved the, thing that, the things that she would wear. And he adored her hair and the way it flowed and all that junk. And she just was amazing to him. And she was always being reminded of how much he was into her. He loved the way that she kissed him. He just adored everything about her. And she, on her part, Gina, had never had a guy that showered her with so many compliments. And he was so romantic. And he would bring flowers. You know, Brandon has game with the ladies. We've seen him in action. Gina's ex-boyfriend was hardly attentive to her at all. And most of the time, the ex-boyfriend preferred going drinking with his buddies as opposed to hanging out with her. But when it came to Brandon... He always wanted to be around Gina as much as possible. And she did introduce Brandon to her parents a few days after they started hanging out. And when he was introduced, Gina embarrassingly didn't even know Brandon's last name. He told them it was Brayman. But later on, Brandon explained to her that his last name was Brandon and that he just didn't like his first name. So he decided to use his last name as his first but it wouldn't be the only name Brandon would tell her about. She would come to know him by a couple of more names as time wore on. As for Gina's mom, when she met Brandon, she thought for sure that he couldn't be more than 12 years old. The fact was Brandon was 20 and Gina was closer in age to him than any other girlfriend that he has had thus far. Gina's mom wanted to speak to her privately where she expressed her concerns that she felt like Brandon was way too young. But Gina was like, he's not 12 years old, and the truth was he was actually older than she was. But her mom still had a hard time believing that. She also thought Brandon acted way too clingy and was way too touchy-feely with her. But Gina told her mom that she liked it, and she liked him, and eventually mom couldn't help but later on admit that Brandon was a very nice, polite young man. So meeting the parents wasn't too bad. They stayed for the first time that they met for about an hour. Brandon told Gina that she had a lovely home and a lovely family. And later on, after they left, they were driving around talking and Brandon told her that she was everything that he had been searching for in a woman. He also expressed his desire to be with her for a very long time and that he always wanted to be with her. While Gina thought that Brandon was being a little bit melodramatic, she told him that he had nothing to worry about. They were together right then and there, and she wasn't going anywhere. Before long, Brandon and Gina were inseparable. But there was always a problem going on in Brandon's background. 
despite getting in trouble numerous times for the stealing and the forgery, it was something that Brandon continued to do, unfortunately. And again, it seemed like one of those impulsive things that Brandon really didn't seem to be deterred from doing despite having spent time in the court system and in the county jail. He just kept doing it. Brandon kept living beyond his means, and he was stealing from friends. And it isn't like his friends had tons of money just laying around either. He had this need or this compulsion to overspend on his girlfriends. It seemed like he felt like he had to buy people's affections, especially when it came to the person that he was dating. He forged checks that he stole from his own grandmother, Doris. He even stole close to $900 from his best friend, Sarah. By the summer of 1993, Brandon was facing a total of 18 separate charges, mostly forgeries and failures to appear. It's said that Brandon didn't think that there was anything wrong with what he was doing because everything he stole, it wasn't like he was taking things for himself Rather, when he took stuff, he gave things away to other people that he loved and cared for. But really, I can't honestly say that I believe Brandon didn't think that there wasn't anything wrong with what he was doing. He just apparently wasn't deterred by the consequences. Being convicted and possibly spending time in jail and having all these court fines, just because he wasn't phased by the consequences didn't mean that he didn't think that there was anything wrong with his actions. He just didn't care. Brandon just really loved spoiling the girls that he was dating. And by the time he got together with Gina, he was really feeling like she was the one. For the first time, really the first time, he felt like he could see himself married to her in the future. Another thing that Gina adored about Brandon was the fact that he never pressured her or asked for sex. They slept in the same bed, and she liked that he was willing to wait. He even said that he wanted to wait until marriage to have sex. She was excited about consummating their relationship someday, but she was also pleased with the fact that he was such a gentleman and let her take things at her own pace. But Gina started seeing what her mother had been concerned about, Brandon appearing to look so young. She thought maybe he was one of those late bloomers who wasn't quite finished with puberty yet because she wondered how it was that he could be 20 years old and not have one single hair on his face. And like Heather's friends before, Gina's friends also didn't believe that they were having sex. Gina tried to explain that they were very close and intimate and had a loving relationship on an emotional level. She tried to explain to her friends that he was very affectionate and that sex wasn't even really necessary. Eventually, Gina decided to save some money and go ahead and let her dorm go and let her mom and dad know that she was living with Brandon. She was paying for college and living expenses on her own, so it was her decision to make. When Gina told her mom that she decided to move in with Brandon, her mom tried putting her foot down, but Gina was like, I'm 19 years old, this is what I want, and this is what I'm doing. Gina's mom was convinced that Brandon was only using her daughter to take advantage of her, moving in with her to have sex with her and to have her do all of his chores and all of his cooking and cleaning. 
what would people think her shacking up with a guy before she's married? She's going to get a reputation around town, etc., etc. Gina tried telling her mom that it wasn't like that, that people can be close and still respect boundaries, but her mom wasn't having it. The conversation over the phone escalated into a yelling match until Gina finally hung up on her mom after her mom told her that as long as she's living with Brandon, she no longer considered her to be her daughter. While those words cut deep, Gina knew what she wanted and she wanted to be with Brandon. Besides, Brandon was the one working hard for her. He did all the cooking and all the cleaning and he was earning all the money too. Her mom was just jumping to conclusions without even knowing what she was talking about. Gina, however, did not like Brandon's friends, Sarah and Drew. From the first time that she met them, Sarah and Drew had been hearing all this good stuff about Gina, this new person in Brandon's life, so they were anxious to meet her, but it didn't go well from day one. There was something about their personalities that Gina couldn't stand, and before long, she was making excuses to get out of hanging out with them. Gina was a big complainer. She did not like the location where Sarah and Drew lived. She did not like the apartments that they lived in. She felt like it was too noisy and too chaotic. Drew tended to dominate the conversation and the room, and it was another thing that annoyed Gina about them. If she ended up having to stay for too long visiting with them because of Brandon, because Sarah is his best friend going back to like middle school when they met at that basketball game and Drew's her boyfriend. So they've been friends for a long time. But whenever the, the visit went too long, Gina would just as soon doze off right there in the living room just to avoid having to interact with them at all. The truth was Gina kind of wanted Brandon's time and attention all to herself. She was really busy with her schedule at school and the part-time job that she had. So her free time was limited and she wanted to spend all of it with Brandon and Brandon alone. She didn't want other friends in the mix. While she wanted to spend every waking moment with Brandon because he was so good to her and such a gentleman and treated her so well all the time, he was so attentive, everything, it all just added up to the perfect boyfriend and she loved him and every day her feelings grew stronger to a point where she just about had to see him as much as possible at the same time Brandon tended to be somewhat demanding of her in his own ways Brandon was possessive and controlling and jealous but Gina at this point was willing to look past that it took work to be with Brandon, and she was more than willing to put in the time and effort. Gina's friends began noticing that her personality had changed since she started dating Brandon. Gina's world had become so wrapped up in him that her friends felt like they were that she was losing her own individuality. Gina never wanted to hang out anymore. She stopped doing the things that she enjoyed doing with her friends. She never made time for them, and her friends didn't think it was very good for her emotionally. Her friends encouraged her to slow things down, because even they could tell that Brandon was very demanding of Gina's free time. But Gina didn't care. He spoiled her rotten. 
He took her out to eat. He showered her with gifts. She'd get roses delivered at her job. She'd come home and there'd always be something for her from Brandon. Whenever Gina and Brandon got to talking about sex, Brandon approached the topic from the standpoint that he was kind of tired of girls objectifying him and using him in that way. And he said that one of his ex-girlfriends wanted to have sex all the time and how it was such a big turnoff. He, (laughs) I find it hard to believe that there's a guy out there that would find a woman wanting to have sex all the time as a turnoff, but possibly, I guess, I don't know. He didn't like being used. And Brandon always told Gina how much he appreciated that she wasn't pushy about sex. Brandon was also getting tired of women using him and taking advantage of his generosity. He was always very giving with the women that he dated, but then it was like they came to expect it all the time. And when he couldn't or wouldn't give them everything that they wanted, that they would just turn around and dump him. And all of this really caused Gina to feel for Brandon and everything that he has had to go through in his past relationships. They knew, his girlfriends knew that if they ever wanted anything, all they would have to do was ask and Brandon would give. Gina assured Brandon that she wasn't interested in his money, but he still told her how he would love to shower her with diamonds and expensive jewelry. And she tried telling him it was okay. She would love that, but she really just wanted him. Nothing else mattered to her. None of that mattered. But for Brandon, it remained constantly important to feel like he could give her whatever she wanted whenever she asked. And that would be getting him in trouble too. There was one particular day when Brandon insisted on buying groceries for the house. But when he was paying for them, he passed a forged check and he was caught and arrested. From the county jail, he called Gina to help him get bailed out. She was on it right away, and she got the $100 that he needed and got him out of jail. But when the paperwork was processed, Gina noticed that Brandon's legal name was Tina Renee Brandon. He tried to make up some lies and excuses about not having been able to get the gender-affirming surgery just yet, but he was in the process of preparing to have it done, that he had to go through some intense therapy before he would be allowed to go through with it. But the truth was Brandon hadn't gone to any therapy sessions for a long time. But he told Gina that he was still going, that he was seeing his therapist while she was in school or at work. So he managed to garner sympathy from Gina by telling her that his girlfriends in the past rejected him once they found out that he had not had the surgery yet. And she finally accepted that it really didn't matter what was going on with Brandon physically. To her, he was a man and he made her happy. She assured him, if getting the surgery is what he wanted, then she would support him 100%. But Brandon kept kind of building on that lie. And he told her that he was scheduled to undergo a double mastectomy the following month in June of 1993. But when the date of the surgery passed without him having the procedure done, he said that he didn't quite have all the money that he needed for it. And 
it would have to be postponed until a later date. But Gina kept asking him about it, and she was wondering when he was going to have the surgery done. So he eventually had to say that he was still unsure about whether or not he was going to go through with it. And this totally confused Gina. He accused her of being too concerned with what other people thought about her. And if he is no longer what she expects in a man, then she isn't accepting him the way that she promised that she would. But Gina told him that if he wasn't going to go through with the surgery, their relationship would be over. He answered that back by proposing to her. It was sometime in June that Brandon asked Gina to marry him. He had even gotten her name tattooed on himself, but he didn't get her a ring just yet. She was a little bit on the fence about whether or not to say yes, but ultimately she accepted. Brandon planned this whole entire celebration at a place called the Harvester Hotel. I looked it up to see if I could see it online, but what I found was the Harvester Motel, so I'm not quite sure if it's the same place, most likely, but I mean, a hotel is a lot different than a motel, but whatever, it's kind of limited what they have access to in such a rural area. But anyway, Brandon reserved three rooms and invited about 30 friends to come and party with him and Gina. He went all out for this engagement celebration, and he simply billed everything to the room. Food, movies, even packs of cigarettes. He filled the bathtub with ice, and then he filled the ice tub with beers. He had numerous pizzas delivered to the rooms, and Brandon even went and rented a tuxedo for the event. And in front of all of their friends, in his tux, Brandon got down on one knee and asked Gina to marry him. He told his friends that he had reached a point in his life where he was ready to grow up, settle down, and get serious. They set the wedding date to be on the anniversary of the day that Gina bailed Brandon out of the county jail. Once all the hoopla died down and things got back to just Gina and Brandon being together and all about each other, that's when she began second-guessing her decision to accept Brandon's proposal. Gina kind of noticed that Brandon wasn't really talking about undergoing the gender-affirming surgery anymore, and she started to have doubts about the procedure as a whole anyway. She had been doing a little bit of research on the subject, and as far as she could see, it wasn't possible to have a penis that fully functioned. And I don't know what the procedure was like 30 years ago, but I did look it up today. And the only thing that can't happen is ejaculation. So back then, if Gina was thinking that she wanted to one day have children, they would have to seek out alternatives. However, she has stated that Brandon kept telling her that having a fully functioning penis was possible. But I don't know if he was thinking about anything beyond just having sex such as getting Gina pregnant and them having kids together. I don't know the full context of the conversation, but we do know that when Brandon is having feelings of desperation, he will say anything that the other person wants to hear, even if it isn't true. Well, Gina wanted to know the truth, and she also wanted some time to herself to think things over. Gina ended up moving out to a tiny one-bedroom apartment 
by herself, which pleased her parents. While she still loved Brandon, she was having a hard time imagining a future without him. It was kind of nice to be able to have her independence back. Brandon was always very jealous whenever she got on the phone. Sometimes he would even hang up the phone while she was in the middle of a conversation with any of her male friends. And it was kind of a double standard because Brandon's girlfriends would frequently be calling him too, or ex-girlfriends as it were. And Gina couldn't stand that there were certain things that he could get away with, but she wasn't allowed to get away with. After Gina had moved in to her new place, Brandon was there like all the time. He spent most of his nights there with her and she allowed it. And whenever he felt like she was about to ask him to leave, he would show back up with gifts for her, things like clothing and jewelry, whatever he knew that Gina wanted or needed. Brandon was constantly giving her things, things that she never asked for, but Brandon wanted to make sure that Gina never wanted for anything. But all of the generosity and all of the gift giving wasn't going to be what Gina wanted or needed in the long run. She told Brandon that she couldn't marry him. So in a last ditch effort to win her over, Brandon went out and purchased a diamond ring for her on a credit card. And he proposed to her for a third time. But she told him that they couldn't get married. Brandon was under the impression that if he got the ring that he promised that he would get for her, that she would see that he was serious. And he told her, I got the ring for you, so we have to get married. He sort of laughed it off like he was kind of joking, but deep down, Brandon was quite serious. Gina had just gotten to a point where she felt in her heart that things just weren't meant to be. So then Gina received a phone call on September 3rd, 1993, and it was from the county jail. And it was Brandon who was arrested once again for forgery, and he wanted Gina to bail him out. This time she would have to come up with $150. She didn't have any extra money laying around like most people don't then or even now, I'm sure to continually have to bail Brandon out every time he got into trouble like this. But she figured she would do this one last time, and that would be the end of it. And in the days and weeks following Brandon's arrest and Gina bailing him out, she was starting to question how much she really knew about Brandon after all. He had told so many lies and had done so many shady things that she wanted to believe in him. But when she found out about the details of Brandon's forgery charges, that he had written checks on an account that belonged to a person named Christopher Holland, totaling $135, that right there was just about all she could deal with anymore. Gina showed up for Brandon's court date to see if he would have bail set. And when his case was called, the judge called for Tina Brandon. To the court... Brandon made up yet another lie about having to attend the funeral of a family member and requested that he have his bail set on that date and that his case be continued for a later date, which the judge allowed. All Gina could do was stand there and listen as the lies flowed so effortlessly out of Brandon before a judge and a courtroom full of people under oath. His lies just weren't going to work for her anymore. But then, whatever 
itty bitty tiny little hope that Brandon may have had that he would have ever had a chance to patch things up with Gina pretty much evaporated when she happened to notice that one of her credit cards for a mall department store went missing. And then when her next bill arrived in the mail, she found out that there had been more than $450 charged on that credit card. She contacted the store to find out what charges were made. And then the very next day after she bailed Brandon out of jail, she received the paperwork in the mail about the fraudulent charges. Brandon had purchased music CDs, clothing for himself, and the diamond ring that he gave to Gina when he proposed to her. He charged all of it on her own credit card without her knowledge or her permission, even her own supposed engagement ring. I don't know how or why Brandon didn't see how badly this would turn out. Not just the potential of getting into more trouble for credit card fraud, but also for doing all of this to the woman that he was trying to win back. Gina decided to not press charges on Brandon for taking her card. She still cared for him and she did still love him, but she was upset and she didn't want to see him in any more trouble than he'd already been in. So there goes Brandon again, managing to make a royal mess out of his relationship with Gina just like he had made a royal mess out of his relationship with Rihanna, too. But aside from that, Brandon had actually struck up a pretty close friendship with Rihanna's brother, Alan. Alan gravitated towards Brandon, and it had a lot to do with the fact that Alan needed Brandon's friendship and support, as he himself was working on coming out about his own sexuality. If any of his friends would have had some sort of understanding about the challenges of coming out of the closet to friends and family, it would probably be Brandon who would most understand and be able to relate. Alan was a tall, handsome young man who dated women, several women, in fact. But all along, he knew that it just wasn't right for him. And when he met Brandon, he felt like he was someone that he could trust with sharing how he felt. It was one afternoon when they were headed out to do their door-to-door -door vacuum sales that's when Alan broached the subject. He told Brandon that he knew he was gay, but he was struggling a lot with it. And as soon as Alan opened up to Brandon, Brandon became very emotional and he started to cry. And while Alan talked about coming out, Brandon admitted to him that he was transgender, but he still had his female body parts and that he found his body to be disgusting and abhorrent. It turned out that Brandon and Alan had a bit more in common than Alan ever really thought that they would. In the town that they were from, everybody knew everybody, and everybody was either friends or they were frenemies. And if anyone were to find out that Brandon was transgender and Alan was gay, they would certainly become targets for ridicule, and there was no getting around that. The people that would be ridiculing them the most would be the people who knew them the best. Those who grew up with them, those who were their neighbors, who had been their friends. And it was already happening. There were mean comments and prank phone calls. People driving by their houses hurling insults. They were being bothered by a particularly rude pair of twin sisters named Erin and Elisa. I will talk about these sisters a little bit later on, at least one of them. 
I'll refer to them as the twins, though, but they'll come up again, I think, in the next episode. They would go to Brandon's house yelling and teasing, and one of them had even gotten into a fisticuffs with Brandon and was able to shove him into a wall while calling Gina a dyke for being his girlfriend. But for the most part, the twins were mostly all bark and no bite. Some other local youths who seemed incapable of tolerance of people whose lifestyles they didn't agree with or understood, they simply chose to just hate because people were different. These two were different. They were the types of people who would be regulars at the local hangouts, who always seemed to be looking for a fight or looking for trouble. Brandon had even started carrying a small can of pepper spray with him because he was always being made to feel like he was under threat. And to be fair, there were people who weren't out to get Brandon just because he was transgender, because we can't forget that Brandon made a lot of people angry, particularly some of his friends and families of his friends, because he had stolen from them. He stole from roommates, from his girlfriend's parents, anybody who let their guard down long enough for Brandon to get his hands on their checkbooks or their credit cards. They had a beef with Brandon that had nothing to do with his gender identity. They were just angry because he ripped them off and pretty much they wanted to kick his ass if they ever got the chance. And while Brandon and Alan's friendship carried on, his sister, Alan's sister, Rihanna, she had met and become involved with a new guy named Hank, who she became very close to. But like many of the young people involved in this story, at the time, this is almost 30 years ago now, in that rural area where they lived, Hank struggled with finding and keeping a job. He would try to find odd jobs during the day, or he would try to stay busy around the place that he shared with Rihanna. I don't really know what's going on with these young people. They seem to be able to find work, but they would only stay there for a few days or a few weeks, if that, and they would either leave on their own or just stop going or they'd be terminated. The people in Brandon's social circle, none of them had any kind of college education and none of them had any marketable skills. They were mostly just kind of cruising through their late teens into their early adulthoods with no real sense of direction. The only one who was going to college and seemed to have her head on straight was Gina. There was an incident one afternoon when Rihanna was talking on the phone and Hank came into the room and demanded that she hang it up. He told her to go into the restroom. Brandon had just stepped out of the bathroom and went into another room and he had left a couple of towels on the floor. And Hank told Rihanna to look under the towels. And she did as he asked. And when she did, a dildo rolled out of the towel and onto the bathroom floor. Now, Rihanna didn't really want to handle it or touch it, but she also didn't want Brandon to know that she found it. So she tried putting things back the way that they were. And she had actually seen a similar dildo once before while she was still Brandon's girlfriend, but she didn't say anything about it back then. But this one was much more realistic than the other one that she had seen. And she knew that Brandon was sort of into these things, the sex toys that he had, and he had lubricants, and he didn't hide the fact that he had these items. And usually he just talked to her about some of the things that he wanted to try if she ever allowed him to. But anyway, while Rihanna was in the bathroom dealing with Brandon's personal items, she also found his wallet. 
She snooped and found that it was loaded with a bunch of credit cards. None of them had Brandon's name on them. And she found a driver's license issued from the state of California. The person in the picture looked similar to Brandon, except the man in the ID picture had facial hair. Among the credit cards was also one that had been cut in half. It was a card that he had stolen from Gina and used to buy himself CDs, clothing, and her engagement ring. And so while all of this was sinking in, Brandon came back into the bathroom and quickly shut the door, said that he was sorry that he left a mess and he would take care of it. And he tried getting Rihanna out of the bathroom, but she forced her way back in, thinking that she would catch Brandon trying to hide that dildo. Well, no such luck. By the time she got back into the bathroom, she didn't know what he had done with it. She tried looking at the crotch area of his pants to see if he had hidden it there, but he hadn't. Brandon finally left the bathroom while she stayed in there searching through the drawers and under the sink, and she finally found it hidden in the back of the cabinet underneath some clothing. Rihanna never really figured out what it was exactly Brandon did with the dildo. And for me, I don't exactly know all that much about this stuff either, but apparently Brandon told Alan that he would use some sort of surgical glue to keep it attached to him somehow. Alan wasn't really sure what to think or make of that, but he did see some sort of weird glue that he had never seen before at Brandon's place. But, you know, you can only take your questions to a certain point and then you're just getting into TMI. So Alan just decided to leave it alone, as shall I, because I really don't need to know. After the mess that Brandon had gotten into with Gina and her credit card, he started bombarding her with love letters and greeting cards, asking for her to forgive him asking for her to come back and let him love her. He told her how much he missed her. He missed waking up next to her, being close to her. All of his sweet words just melted her. And Gina wanted so badly to be told all of these sweet nothings all the time. She needed it. And she began to think that she was never going to find a man that would adore her the way that Brandon did. And he tried mightily to woo her back. He thought that if he just kept trying, that he would eventually say the exact right thing or play her just the right song or shower her with just the right tokens of his affections and that she would be back with him again. If he just flat out refused to take no for an answer. But he was beginning to realize that he wasn't getting anywhere. So then he tried guilt tripping her. He fell asleep crying every single night and all he wanted, all he was begging for was just one more evening to lay with her, one final night before they parted ways forever. He told her that he loved her more than he ever had before, more than anyone he'd ever known. He desperately wanted to fix their relationship. He would do whatever she wanted him to do if he could just be with her again. He apologized, it seemed like, a million times apologized for all of his lies, for hurting her, for misleading her, for scaring her away from him. He begged her to not focus on all of these negative things, but instead remember all of the wonderful things about being with him and being together. And if he could have a do-over, he'd start from the beginning, fresh and new and genuine, wondering if she would have even been with him at all if she had known the truth from the first time that they met. 
would she have still fallen in love with him if she had known? But instead of doing that, he decided to try and show her how much he loved her and how well he would treat her before he was able to tell her the truth. And most importantly, he never meant to cause her any pain. He only did his best to be what she wanted and what she needed in a man. In addition to all the promises Brandon was making to Gina, he also promised that he would pay her back the money that he spent on her department store credit card. He also said that he had his eye on a Datsun 280ZX. Y'all remember those cars? I do vividly because my uncle used to have one when I was little, and I remember this one time I was getting out of the car and he slammed the car door on my damn hand and I was trying to get out of the back seat and I just hated that car and stupid shutters and I can't even remember. You know those, it had those like shutters on the back window like you find on your house. It was like a thing. And I can't even remember if the stupid car had a back seat or if it just had a small slanted area for you to lay down in a fetal position inside the hatchback. This car just sucked so bad. And I even went and Googled the car as I was writing this and I immediately got triggered. <laughs> he also told Gina, Brandon also told Gina that he was planning on going to the homecoming dance at his high school and that he was going with a girl who was apparently still in school because he had already not graduated a year and a half earlier. And while Gina was not caving in to Brandon's attempts to win her back, she was still a little bit perturbed by him the thought of him going out with other girls. So the way that Gina found comfort was in one of her exes named Rick. She spent as much time with him as she possibly could to try and keep her mind off of Brandon. Then came a time when Gina just needed some time away from it all, just on her own to sort things out for a weekend that fall, late fall of 1993. Brandon had a hard time with Gina being away and being out of touch. So he managed to find her and track her down and he called her and told her another whopper of a lie. He said that his grandpa passed away and he really needed her support and asked her to attend the funeral with him. Gina rushed home to be by Brandon's side only to find that it was a ruse to get her to be with him again. She was so mad that she actually called the police in order to have him forcibly removed from her home because he wouldn't leave. Law enforcement suggested that they could assist her in obtaining a temporary order of protection, and she told the police that she would think about it. As Halloween approached and Brandon's repeated attempts to get back with Gina had failed, he tried asking his other ex, Rihanna, and her brother, Alan, to go over and talk to Gina for him on his behalf to see what they could do to help him work things out with her. But after that too failed with all of his other attempts, Brandon finally realized that he needed to try and move on and that he had to let Gina go. She had given him back the ring that he bought her using her credit card and he told her that he learned from his many mistakes with her and that in the future, whoever he meets, whatever he does, he will always start off from the truth from day one. Brandon expressed his gratitude for her helping him see the error of his ways 
and for wanting to help him figure out his life. But the truth was when Brandon finally walked away from Gina, he was overcome with emotion. He became flooded with suicidal ideations. He wrote letters obsessively. He sent cards. He constantly apologized. He made empty promises that he knew he could never keep. All of this had left Brandon feeling hopeless, much like when he first broke up with Heather. It seems like Brandon's girlfriends were like drugs, and the breakups were like withdrawals, and Brandon could not cope with it. Both Gina and Heather, they both hurt for him, because they did very much love Brandon. Joanne tried to question Brandon about his constant need for money. I mean, okay, we all need money, but Joanne was like, if your financial situation is so bad, why don't you try and find a job? And Brandon told her that he was doing the door-to-door vacuum sales thing, but the vacuums cost a lot of money and it was hard to convince people that they needed to spend so much on an appliance like that. And Joanne told Brandon, well, so stealing and forging checks is your solution. But Brandon gave the answer that a lot of criminal defendants tend to give. It wasn't me. It was somebody else. I'm getting blamed for something that I didn't do. I'm taking the fall, etc., etc. And Joanne was basically like, look, if it wasn't you, then why are you the one that's always in trouble? Why are you the one that's getting arrested? Why are you the one that has to go to court all the time? Joanne was really afraid that Brandon was going to spend a significant amount of time in jail, which is something that Brandon didn't seem to take into consideration very seriously. But as Joanne tried talking to him, she did the best that she could to not say anything that would upset him too much because his go-to reaction was to always shut her out and run off and live elsewhere. Joanne worried about Brandon all the time. She was worried about the way he was living his life. Being friends with Alan, Joanne was thinking that he was starting to have more guy friends, and she thought most of them were gay, but still, he was around guys all the time and was looking and behaving more and more like a guy. And he started actually working out and becoming quite strong. In fact, he told his mom he was capable of lifting a man twice his own size. And there is a picture of that in Aphrodite Jones's book, and I'll share that with you on social media when this episode goes live. In her book, Aphrodite Jones writes about Joanna's feelings about this, stating, If Tina wanted to be a guy, fine. If she wanted to have a sex change, that was okay too. It didn't matter to Joanne either way. She just wanted Tina to stay safe. Joanne stated, Back then, you were hearing reports that there was a gay man in Omaha found dead or another guy beaten. It was always something to do with their sexual identity. People are cruel and mean, and if you're different, people don't want to deal with it. So I was afraid for her. And dreamers, I totally do not want to be judgy or come down too hard on Joanne at all. These were very different times, and she was born in a different time too in in the 1950s and she grew up during the 60s there was a counterculture movement and of course the civil rights movements there was all that but i have to point out that i didn't get the feeling that 
it was all good and fine with Joanne. When Jones wrote, if Tina wanted to be a guy, fine. If she wanted to have a sex change, fine. It's been reported across many years and different sources that Joanne rejected Brandon's male identity. She did not call him Brandon, and she referred to him as a daughter and sister, and it would be that way all the way until the end and beyond. Maybe Aphrodite Jones spoke to Joanne in, for purposes of this book, and those are some of the things that Joanne had said and the sentiments that she shared, but I don't necessarily believe that she was being completely honest. I do believe that Joanne feared for Brandon's safety, and I think she felt helpless to do anything about it. It's very hard to say, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I do think Brandon's experiences could have been much different if he did feel like he had the unconditional love and support of his mom. I'm not a mental health expert, but I do know what it feels like to be conditionally tolerated and often rejected for anything that my mom didn't like or care for. Anything from the style of my hair to the color I may have painted my nails to the career that I chose. All of those things are things that I had control over. But I can't imagine the hurt and confusion when it comes to being rejected by your mother for something that you couldn't control. Joanne did fear for Brandon. He was her child. And we all worry about our kids. And there were a couple of ways that that could have been handled. And she had every right to feel the way that she felt. But I can't help but wonder, what if, you know? What if she did just say, okay, son, you are who you are. And I'm here for it. And I'm here for you. But she never said that. As we wind down this episode on Brandon, we're going to go through a very short period of time, but it seems like a lot longer because it's so complicated and convoluted, but it is very important to the timeline leading up to Brandon ending up in the town of Humboldt, Nebraska. There are more names, more people, more friends, more girlfriends that are going to be mentioned, and I will do my best to explain it as concisely and as easily as possible because it was like the combination of it all. It was like this perfect storm of everything and everyone coming together just so that led to the decision for Brandon to leave Lincoln and take refuge in Humboldt, which is a rural town about 80 miles or 128 kilometers away, further down the southeastern corner of the state. Brandon's mom and sister in the months leading up towards the middle of the fall of 1993, they decided that they were going to try and crack down on Brandon's behavior by using the tough love method. They thought that if they began refusing to help Brandon anymore, that he would be forced to change, mainly when it came to his criminal activities. The two of them needed to stop catching him every time he fell. They needed to stop being his safety net, especially when he'd burned all of his bridges with all of his friends and girlfriends and their families. Perhaps Brandon needed to start earning his keep. Maybe he needed to not have a free place to land every time he broke up with a girlfriend 
or had a fight with a roommate or betrayed somebody's friendship and trust by using their checking accounts, debit cards, and credit cards without their permission. Maybe Brandon needed to spend some time cooling his heels in jail for a while instead of getting bailed out every single time. Everybody was broke. Everybody was poor. And Brandon was stealing from people who were already struggling. And yeah, he would spoil his girlfriends and shower them with presents. But he splurts on himself too. And again, this to me seems like it can be linked back to the fears of being rejected or fears of losing his girlfriends. So he kept trying to win them over with gifts and jewelry and clothes and going out and dinners and all this fun stuff. Brandon may not have felt the need to have done all of that if he was confident that he would be loved and accepted as is. To me, Brandon seemed so desperate to be loved that the consequences of all the petty crimes wasn't even something that he had taken into consideration. All he wanted was to be loved. Brandon's sister Tammy had a super soft spot for Brandon. She was absolutely incapable of telling him no whenever he needed anything. But the whole tough love thing wasn't going to work unless everybody in Brandon's life followed suit. What good would it do Brandon if he called his mom or his sister to bail him out of jail and they said no and then he would turn around and call his paternal grandmother or his girlfriend and ask them for bail and they came through for him? Tammy would say that Brandon did not need to go around stealing money from his girlfriends, his friends, or their families, that he could have depended on her and their mom if he ever needed anything. And Tammy said that they tried spending more time with Brandon quality time doing things together as a family to try and help him stay on the straight and narrow, but he just wouldn't be around all that much. And I do get that. When I was in my early 20s, and I'm maybe going to college, maybe working, having your own money, new sets of friends, meeting different people, getting your own car, I always wanted to hang out with my friends. And my daughter, who is currently 22 years old, is the same exact way. So I totally understand not wanting to hang out with your mom or your sister or whatever. Wanting to spend more time with him was great, but there was more to Brandon's problems than lack of family quality time. What made things particularly annoying for Tammy is that by 1993, she was working full-time as a waitress at a diner that was open 24-7. She worked long hours and probably not at a very high hourly rate. Minimum wage was like $4.25 an hour. And along with whatever tips she earned, it was all she had. And whenever Brandon asked for money, she never said no, but at the same time, Brandon never paid her back. In fact, he didn't even express or acknowledge or indicate that he ever intended to pay her back, nor did it seem like he ever felt obligated to either, as if the world owed him. Tammy understood that Brandon had a difficult time holding down a steady job. Tammy stated that it had to do with Brandon identifying as a male, but legally, on paper, he was female. And while he did have some fake IDs that listed him as male, they weren't good enough fakes, apparently, for him to use for employment purposes, so he would never get hired. According to Tammy, Brandon refused to apply for or be hired into a job as Tina Brandon. He just flat out refused. And I get it. I totally get it. 
things are different now and more transgender inclusive, but at the time, Brandon apparently had to be employed under his legal name. Now, if Brandon decided that he was not going to work unless he could apply as Brandon Tina instead of Tina Brandon and have the name Brandon printed on his paperwork and paychecks and everything, that's fine. That's his prerogative. But then he really needed to sit his butt at home and figure out a way to earn a living on his terms. But for him to choose to go stealing from friends and family instead, that was his solution and it hurt lots of people who were already struggling. And that just... I mean, clearly it's not the solution, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, and I'm sorry if anybody out there is offended by what I'm about to say, but if Brandon could go and forge checks in the names of numerous other people, if he could fraudulently sign signatures on credit card slips that aren't his, he can certainly earn and sign a paycheck in his legal name too. You do what you have to do, and it doesn't mean you go out and harm others financially just because you refuse to work because you can't accept checks written to the name that you were given when you were born. He could have earned the money to go and have his name legally changed at the court. I don't know what it cost in the early 90s, but when I looked it up now, it costs $435 to do it in California. It's $270 in Nevada. And I honestly couldn't get a straight answer as to how much it costs in Nebraska. But today... A state over in the state of Iowa, it's $185. So Brandon could have worked. He could have earned the money. He could have saved and he could have changed his name to whatever the hell he wanted to change it to. But it doesn't even seem like anyone ever suggested it. And of all the people Brandon asked for money from or borrowed or took without permission, I never read anywhere that that ever came up. The idea of getting his name changed so that he could use whatever name he wanted to find gainful employment. So to me, it kind of sounds like an excuse that Brandon used to not work. And you know, it's possible that he could have even qualified for disability if he did have mental health issues, if he was struggling with depression, and he was hospitalized for a week and he was getting therapy. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the people in Brandon's life at the time just didn't know what resources were out there for him. I've binged a lot of Judge Judy and People's Court and whatnot. And I mean, you know, Judge Judy goes back to 1996. She's got 6,280 episodes. And there's 120 episodes of her new show, Judy Justice. And trust me, there is no shortage of people who are on disability for many, many years for relatively minor sounding stuff. And they do other stuff like side work, under the table work, and or they keep having children. But yeah, they can make kids, but they can't have a job due to some rando injury from 15 years ago. Again, maybe Brandon, his family, his circle of friends, just were not aware of the resources that were out there that could have provided him with the help that he needed. His sister Tammy didn't totally mind helping Brandon out when he asked for money, but it did bother her when he would spend the money on his friends and girlfriends. As stated, Tammy worked very hard to earn every dollar, and it wasn't fun watching it be spent on others. When Tammy finally confronted Brandon, not about what he was doing but the reasons behind it, Brandon had no answers. She asked, why are you doing this? I don't know. 
Why do you take other people's checkbooks and credit cards? I don't know. You know you're going to get in trouble. They're going to catch on to you. But still, all Brandon could say was he didn't know and that he was really confused. Tammy told Brandon that he was hurting their mom and he would acknowledge it, but then he would try and change the topic to avoid the discussion. Tammy would then press the issue even more and told him, you're going to end up in prison. And Brandon was like, I know. And he was terrified of even the thought of going to prison for an extended period of time, but it still wasn't enough to deter him. Tammy thought maybe after they talked things through for a while that Brandon would want to try and do things differently. She thought that Brandon would want to work on turning things around, but she also understood that Brandon felt kind of trapped as well. Towards the end of October of 1993, Brandon had a new girlfriend, a tall, pretty 18-year-old named Daphne Gugat. Brandon was introduced to her through Alan, who was their mutual friend. Daphne was kind of a more type of casual hookup sort of a girlfriend, but she insisted that she and Brandon never went further than kissing, though they spent many of their days and nights laying in bed together. But that was kind of common for Brandon to be intimate with his girlfriends, but to an extent. And it was around Halloween that Daphne and Alan decided to try and share a place to save money, and it happened to be across from where Brandon was staying with his mom, so he would end up being over at their place almost all the time. They would stay in, and they would drink beers, and they would have pizzas delivered. It's believed that Brandon had fallen for Daphne, and we know that that's how he was. He tended to fall fast and hard. But Daphne, despite the rumors that they were an item, insisted that they never were more than just friends. She saw him as kind of a kid, even though he was older than her. He did look much younger. She didn't even think that Brandon was old enough to drive a car. She tried asking Brandon's ex-girlfriend, Rihanna, about him, but Rihanna didn't reveal much, including the truth about his gender identity. She kept that to herself. But as it were, Brandon was still not over Gina. If he was hanging out with other girls, it was all a ploy to try and make Gina so jealous that she would take him back. And for Brandon, while he may have liked Daphne, she was one of several girls that Brandon was seeing, all in an effort to drive Gina crazy. And to me, that doesn't sound like a good plan, but it doesn't sound like Brandon was ever really full of good plans to begin with. He struck me as having been the type of person who needed things to happen for him immediately, like right now. He had no patience. He didn't like waiting. He didn't like not having. He didn't like taking time to do things the right way because he needed immediate satisfaction. My daughter's kind of like that. She has no patience for anything. When she's watching streaming TV shows, she can't stand commercials. She hates waiting a week for a new episode that, of a show that she's watching to be released. She hates waiting for food in restaurants. I mean, in Evelyn's defense, she's grown up in this time where everything and anything that we need can get delivered straight to us just from clicking around on some apps in our phones. Brandon wanted things and he wanted them 
then and now, and he had no patience to wait or work for it. And Gina still wasn't quite over Brandon either. In fact, I thought this was kind of obsessively weird. She had a bumper sticker on the back of her car that said Brandon and Gina. So the fact that she didn't take that off, I think, says a lot, especially because that's a very public expression of love, considering how adamant she was about her unwillingness to forgive Brandon and to take him back. He still had spent a lot of time with Gina, but whenever she got mad or they fought, he went right back into Daphne's arms. Daphne was a party girl, and Brandon very much enjoyed that aspect about her. She had a large circle of friends. Her place was always busy. People were always over partying. It only took a short time living with Daphne that Alan realized that Daphne was not much more than just a big mooch. They agreed to split the bills and the cost of food and supplies for the home, but if Alan went and spent a bunch of money at the grocery store, Daphne would say that she would pay him back, but she never would. The living arrangements only lasted about a month before Alan decided he had had enough. On top of that, he was kind of sick and tired of seeing Daphne take advantage of Brandon. Brandon being Brandon, he would buy anything that Daphne wanted. In her defense, however, Brandon was admittedly using her to make Gina jealous. So she's taking advantage of him. He's taking advantage of her. Feels sort of like a mutual kind of a thing. Daphne did have an assortment of people living in her trailer anyway, so Alan leaving wasn't that big of a deal. Daphne had plenty of friends to spare. Plenty of them were contributing to the household bills. And one of them was her best friend. And this was a young woman named Lindsay Klassen. And the two of them were like peas in a pod. And they pretty much had everything in common and were always, always together. And the two of them talked about everything, and they really talked a lot about Brandon. They were both pretty smitten with him. They both thought he was super cute and really sweet, a perfect gentleman, and just about nearly the perfect guy. He showered the both of them with attention, and they enjoyed every second of it. They did find out some version of the truth about Brandon's gender identity, but only to an extent. I believe that they were given the hermaphrodite story, but they did not care. Brandon was at their beck and call. Whatever they wanted, he delivered. Whatever they needed, he was there. So when Gina found out about Daphne and Lindsay, she got really upset. She did not like seeing Brandon being taken advantage of, and it angered her that these two girls would be so blatant about using him to the extent that they were, and when she tried talking to Brandon about it, he described Daphne and Lindsay as being very important to him, and he insisted that they needed his help. If they went to see Brandon at his mom's trailer, and if they wanted to stay the night at his place, the two of them would take over his bedroom, and Brandon would end up sleeping out on the living room sofa. If they wanted food, he went and ordered it. If they wanted to smoke, he'd go to the local store and buy them packs of cigarettes. If they were short on rent money, Brandon would give it to them. And we know Brandon didn't have very much, if any, money of his own at all to be just giving away like nothing. 
and it only compounded Gina's anger and resentment towards Brandon because he still owed her for bailing him out of jail and for the credit card that he took and charged more than $400 on it without asking her. Brandon told Gina that he was selling vacuums and that he was selling about one a day and that would get him $250 in commission, but she never saw him with any money. Yet somehow he was able to do and give everything to Lindsay and Daphne. I'm going to hazard a guess here and say that I doubt Brandon was selling any vacuums and I doubt the money that he was giving to these two girls was money that he generated from a hard day's work. It could have been borrowed or otherwise it was probably ill-gotten gains. As it turned out, the latter seemed to be what was going on as Gina would come to find out once again. There had come a time when she had gone out of town on a road trip. She sort of ran out of money, and she contacted Brandon to see if he could give her some of the money that he owed her. And he said that he would send a Western Union, but after several days of checking to see if the wire had gone through, and it hadn't, Gina called him back and asked again. So, Brandon ended up stealing somebody's debit card, withdrawing some money, and sending it to Gina. And she was apparently really upset when she found out about this. But to me, I have to ask, what did Gina expect? Brandon was always broke and always taking money from others. If she didn't think he was making any money, if she knew how he usually operated, what did she expect him to do when she started asking him for money while she was on vacation? To pull it out of his ass? I mean, I know he owed her money, but I don't think that she can legitimately get upset because Brandon was put on the spot to come up with some cash. She's out of town. He's probably worried that she won't have any money to eat or to get back home. So he resorted to his old tricks again. At the same time, Brandon could have gotten honest with her and himself and just told her, I'm broke. I'm not working. I don't have any money. I'm not selling any vacuums. I'm tapped out. Everybody I know is tapped out. I've burned all my bridges. I'm sorry, can't help. But Brandon had a strained relationship with the truth. And I mean, I feel like his heart was in the right place. He loved Gina. He adored her. If she would have taken him back, he would have given her the sun, the moon, and the stars. But he just went about it all wrong. She probably would have loved him just as much with empty hands and empty pockets. Which makes the whole thing that much more heartbreaking. He tried telling Gina that he really just wanted to help her and she said, yeah, but not like this. Just get a job, work, earn. And he was like, yeah, but that's all he really had to say for himself. Gina had had it with Brandon, but whenever that happened, he just redirected his attention back on to Daphne and Lindsay, mostly Daphne. Just as Brandon was using Daphne to make Gina jealous, Daphne was sort of doing the same thing to get back at one of her exes too. She would go around telling people how amazing Brandon was in bed just to get the rumors going and Brandon was all over it. He loved these rumors and all it did was help bolster his gender identity for anyone who questioned it and he really wanted people to believe them. But Daphne kind of took things a little too far by starting to go around telling people that she was pregnant and that Brandon was the dad. 
And that was just next level for Brandon. He was going to ride that rumor off into the sunset, telling people, yeah, I don't know what went wrong. I used a condom, so he wasn't even sure if the baby was really his. And she was going around probably to a lot of the same people because it seems like everybody knew everybody else anyway. So while Brandon was going around questioning paternity, whether or not the baby's his, Daphne was going around insisting that it had to be Brandon. He's the only guy that she's having sex with. But those who knew the real truth about Brandon being transgender, they were like, seriously? You want us to believe that Brandon is the dad? Okay. Daphne, making a complete fool out of herself, proudly proclaimed, yes, I just took the pregnancy test and it's positive. He's the dad. And so with this, along with a series of people, events, and circumstances, we're about to lead Brandon to the town of Humboldt, Nebraska, a move that would essentially seal his fate. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to pause the story here. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to listen to these episodes, The Tale of Brandon Tina in recognition of Pride Month. Please join the Facebook discussion group. I'm trying to work on my social media presence to make sure I post more across all the places that you could follow California Dreaming, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm also on TikTok, but I mostly post about the dogs there. However, I do try to remember to post about new episodes of the show. And if you're feeling generous or lonely and you want more of me in your ears, go on over to Patreon, scroll around and see if there's anything you can find worthwhile to listen to and get access starting as low as $1 a month. Every patron gets at least one exclusive bonus per month, whether you donate $1 or $100. Stay tuned for the next part of this series. I will pick it up from where we left off. I have most of it written. I just have to get it recorded. Again, thank you all so much. Please listen past this outro for a promo from the Invasion of the Remake podcast. I love you all. Be safe. Stay cool. Summer is almost here. And until next time, sweet dreams and love one another. War continues to rage across the globe. Our valiant men and women have been winning battles as the war continues to march on. Hollywood continues to produce clone after clone of the films you used to enjoy. There have been some defectors, but most remakes continue to assault your sensibilities. Our small troop of trained experts continue to expose these imposters while showing Hollywood a better way. Support the invasion of the remake by listening, reviewing, and subscribing. Your knowledge is power. We're all in this together. Spread the word. Subscribe to Invasion of the Remake on all major podcast providers. New episodes dropping weekly at invasionoftheremake.wixsite.com slash podcast. <laughs>